0: So I'm assuming it's time for me, right? So let me just give you a, uh, a warm welcome from Mars, PA. My name is Will Cole, and uh, my wife's name is Aaron, and we have three beautiful children. Samuel, who's six, Catherine, who's three, and baby Oliver, who is six months, but is quickly outgrowing the both of our children. He's a tank. Look, we are um, in the North Hills of Pittsburgh planting New Horizon Church. I'm hoping through this work that God can help us bring new hope and purpose to every life. It's the vision of our church. That's what we feel like God has called us to do. And let me just say this. It is an honor um, to partner with churches like Renaissance Church. And it is a privilege to be a friend of Rob. And his family. Um, Rob and I have had opportunities to talk, and I tell you, there's no more soulful pastor I've ever met than my friend Rob. And so I just want to thank you guys so much this morning for giving me an opportunity to teach you from God's Word, um, to give you just an opportunity to to hear what God has done in my life and my heart as I've studied this passage. And so I'll tell you this moving forward there's no um, greater book in the Bible, I think, in my opinion, in the book of Exodus. And here's why, church, is because God demonstrates and displays himself as a Savior. There are two great redemptive actions in all of the Bible, the Exodus and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I love the book of Exodus. And so let's just, let let me pray. I know we just prayed, but I just want to pray and ask God to be with us as we listen to his word this morning. Father God, I pray that you would show yourself to be just today. God, that you would show yourself to be righteous, and you would show yourself to be a Savior, so that every single one of us, God, would lift our eyes from the things that we might be looking to to provide meaning and purpose in life to you, where we would find hope, where we would find life, and we would find purpose. Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. God, open our hearts to hear and receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, hey, just by show of hands, let's see. Who's seen the movie Frozen 2? Let's see it. Where are you at? So I'll just tell you before I go on that if you haven't seen it and you want to see it, just, like, plug your ears because I'm going to dive deep into Frozen 2 this morning a little bit. So, um, like I said, I have three amazing kids. And they love Disney. We haven't had cable in forever. And so we bought, we got Disney Plus when this COVID thing came out. And so once we got Disney, we were able to kind of jump into all these amazing Disney movies that have been produced that we haven't seen. And one of those was Frozen 2. And I just got to admit, like being a follower of Jesus and kind of looking for redemption in all of culture, it's there in Frozen 2. It's amazing. And so let me just let you in a little bit on the plot of the movie. So as you know, if you've seen the movie, Elsa begins to hear this voice that's calling to her from somewhere she doesn't know. And the more she begins to investigate this voice, it draws her into her purpose, the purpose for which she has her magic. And get this, so as she goes into the land, this magical place, She finds that water holds memory. And so, as she's starting to kind of investigate why she hears this voice and why this voice is calling to her, she comes across a bunch of memories of her family. She sees memories of her mom saving her dad, she sees memories of children playing, but then she sees this tragic memory of her grandfather, King Runard. So, King Runard established the kingdom of Arendelle. And in his building of the kingdom of Arendelle, he meets the North Aldrin people. The North Aldrin people were these natives to the land, and they had a mighty land, mighty river. And the king felt that it would be best to build a dam on the river to stop the water so that he can build his kingdom, Arendelle. And the North Aldrin people find that the dam, in fact, isn't a gift to the land at all, but it's damaging the land. And when the North Aldrin king approaches King King Runard to tell him what he's found, King Runard does something tragic. King Runard kills the leader of the North Aldrin people. And Elsa, as she's listening in on the conversation that Runard is having with one of his, the captains of his army, King Runard says this, he says, the North Aldrin people follow magic. He says, and magic makes people feel too powerful. It makes them feel enabled. He says, it makes them feel like they can defy the rule of a king. And as Elsa listens in, she, she says, that's not true at all. She says, in fact, magic doesn't do that. She goes, it's your fear. She says, it's fear that we cannot trust. And so what Elsa begins to pick up on is that the king actually fears the North Aldrin people. And out of his fear of them and fear of discovering that he's been using these people, he kills the king or the leader of the North people. And so here, here, here's my point guys is Elsa picks up on this very important truth that we need to understand as the people of God. And that is that fear of man cannot be trusted. That we cannot live our lives in fear of man. And as I study Exodus 1, 8 through 22, I see that, so, that truth so clearly is that fear of man will lead us to do things we never imagined we would do. And so in chapter 1, verse 8 through 22, it's really the tale of two stories. It's the tale of two different lives. So on one side of the story, we have this king that Moses introduces us to in verse 8. And here's what we know about this king, is he doesn't remember Joseph. And that's important because Joseph is integral to the history of Israel and Egypt. See, Joseph was sold into slavery, if you remember, by his brothers. And upon going to Egypt, God blesses Joseph with favor and wisdom to interpret dreams. And soon Joseph finds himself as the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Amazing, right? A slave to the second most powerful man in the land. And through his power and his influence, God does an amazing thing. He actually lets Joseph and the king know that a famine is coming and that that if Joseph would use wisdom to lead the nation, they could set aside food that would save not only Egypt, but the promised children of God. And so Joseph was like a a hero in Egypt, a hero to Israel. And yet here this king is, who has no memory of Joseph's actions, has no memory of the people of Israel. And he begins to grow tireless of them. He begins to look at the people of Israel and their growth as a threat he begins to think that Israel is becoming more prosperous and growing larger and more mighty than his kingdom. And so soon the king of Egypt finds his heart threatened by Israel. And as a result, the king of Pharaoh lets fear of man take root in his heart and begin to guide the way that he lives and to begin to guide the way he treats the people of Israel. In fact, because he feared Israel, he feared their growth. We see that in in verse 9. He says, they are becoming too many and too mighty for us. And here's how we know that the king was motivated solely out of fear. is because his number one fear was fear of war. You see that again in, in verse 10. He says, let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and make war with us. See, the king was afraid that the people of Israel would form a coalition with his enemies and that they would actually rise up against Egypt and to take away their kingdom. And so as we dig down deep into the heart of the king of Egypt, what we really find is he was afraid of losing power and losing control. That's really what motivated the heart of the king. And so what does he do? When we live by fear of man, when we live in fear of losing power and control, what do we do? What does the king do? He lets that fear form a plan. And phase A of that plan was oppression. That's one of the very first moves the king makes as we look in verse 11. He says, let's deal shrewdly with them. And so they set taskmasters over the children of Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. And so phase A of Pharaoh's plan to rid Egypt of Israel was oppression. And that's what we see. But phase A didn't work. In fact, we see in verse 12 that the more the king pressed on the nation of Israel, the more they multiplied. Because there's something at work behind the scenes that the king is unaware of. And so the king decides, let's move phase plan one to plan two. And fear of man begins to motivate him to commit murder. And so what he does is he elicits the help of the Hebrew midwives to actually take the life of every male baby born to the nation of Israel. But soon the king finds that that plan doesn't work either because those women fear someone other than the king. And so phase three of the plan was societal genocide. If he can't stop them through oppression, if he can't stop them through the Hebrew midwives, then the king decides I'll stop them with my people. And so he enacts societal genocide where he gives permission to the nation of Egypt to throw every male baby born to the Hebrews into the Nile River. And so, church, that's only half of the story. And so what I want you guys to see this morning is this. I want you to see how the trajectory of fear of man led the king of Egypt. When the king of Egypt began to fear man, he began to oppress. And when oppression wasn't enough, he enacted murder. And when murder didn't work, he moved to genocide. And so what we see is fear of man leads this king to do unimaginable things. But then there's other characters in the story of Exodus 1, 8 through 22. See, in verse 15, Moses introduces us to two women, a woman named Shipra and a woman named Pua. And what's amazing about these two women's names in Hebrew is Shipra means beautiful one, and Pua means splendid one. And these women, through this narrative, are actually going to get an opportunity to display their splendidness and their beauty through their actions. Because when Pharaoh calls these women into his quarters and tells them to take the life of every male baby born to to the Hebrews. I love what it says in verse 17. But the Hebrew, the midwives feared God and did not do what the king commanded. And so what we see, guys, is these two women, Shipra and Pua. They weren't just ordinary women. They were leaders among midwives. They were the ones with power and influence, just like the king. But what we're going to see is because they feared God, they would use their power and their influence to actually create flourishing in the land. Because they feared God, they disregarded the commands of the king. They didn't feel like his authority could trump the authority of the one that they followed. And so the women disregarded his command. Because they feared the Lord. And so what I want you to see is when these women, these beautiful women, these splendid women, begin to operate out of the fear of God, some beautiful things happen. One of the first things that we see these wom- women do is they display courage. Right? Who are they to stand in the face of the king of Egypt? Yet they do because they have God on their side. Not only do they display courage, but they demonstrate redemption through their actions. So instead of taking the life of of the babies, they actually save life and give life. These women do a, a beautiful thing. And then through their lives, the nation of Israel prospers. We see that in verse 20. The people multiplied and grew strong. And as a result of these two women living in fear of God rather than fear of man, Scripture tells us God prospered them. God blessed them. And so these women actually became a blessing to an entire nation because of the way that they lived their life. And so church, here's here's what I want you guys to see this morning. If If you're taking notes, is I believe this is the principle that God wants us to see out of these few verses. It's this, that fear of God leads us into the blessings of God. Fear of God leads us into the blessings of God. Now, how do we know this to be true? Like, how can you and I know that if I live in fear of God, I'll actually be a blessing to others and receive blessings from God? How do we know that? I think, it's, I think we can discern that in two ways. Is one, just look at the contrast of the way God dealt with the king to the way God dealt with the women. And so that's what I want us to do in this moment is I want us to look at how God actually opposed the actions of the king. Because in seeing how God opposed his actions, we'll see how God blesses those who live in fear of God rather than man. And so one of the first things that we see through the actions of the king church is the king opposes God by standing in opposition to God's creation decree. So get this in verse 11. After the king of Egypt kind of hatches this plan to deal shrewdly with the nation of Israel, he actually goes through with it. He says, Look, if we're going to act shrewdly with them, if we're going to oppress them, we need to set taskmasters over them. And so the king set powerful men over the nation of Israel to afflict them with heavy burdens. And what we see is man taking dominion over man. Man exuding power and and oppression and affliction over his fellow man. And through that oppression, they actually use Israel as slaves to help their nation flourish. Through Israel's slave labor, they built store cities, Pithon and Ramses. And so church, here's what I want you guys to see, is the sin at work in the king's heart was that he lived in opposition to this truth, that God created man in his image and his likeness. Man did not have the right to take dominion over man. And that's actually seen in Genesis chapter one, verse 27 through 28. And here's what the word of God says. It says, so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Listen to what God, the dominion God gives man. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea have dominion over the birds of the air and have dominion over every living thing that moves on earth do you know what's missing from that list dominion over man god never gave man the right to take dominion over other human beings but instead god called human beings adam and eve and all of creation to exercise dominion over the world God created so through them the world would flourish and prosper. But what we see in the heart of this king is a marred dominion, where he uses his power to oppress other people. And so God opposes this king. But not only does God oppose him because of his opposition to God's creation decree, but God opposes this king because this king stands in direct opposition to God, pro- God's promises. Look with me in verse 12. In verse 12, Moses tells us that the more the king oppressed the nation of Israel, the more they flourished. Like, imagine that. The king's plan is completely backfiring on them. Right? He, expected them to, he expected to be able, through slave labor, to stamp out the nation of Israel. But it had the reverse effort. They actually multiplied and grew strong. And we have to ask ourselves a question, like, how did this happen? Why did it happen? And I'll tell you why it happened. Because God had promised that in Egypt, the nation of Israel would grow strong. They would become a great nation. And look with me, if you're taking notes, write down Genesis chapter 15, verse 5 through 6. In Genesis chapter 15, God has a conversation with Abraham, the father of Israel. And he tells him this, he brings Abraham out of his tent, and he said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God promised Abraham that through God, the, that his people would grow large and mighty. And that was a promise that went from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And what we're seeing in Exodus is God being faithful to his promise. Despite the opposition Israel was experiencing, God was working out their good and the suffering they were experiencing. And so God is actually opposing this king. Now, church, this shouldn't surprise us. Because one thing that Scripture teaches, one thing that is clear, is that God fights for those who are oppressed. Again, if you're taking notes, write down Isaiah, uh, Psalm 103, verse 6 through 7. And listen to this beautiful passage. It says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Guys, we should not be surprised that God is opposing this king. It is a part of his character as a just and righteous God to fight for the people in the margins of this world, right? It's, the, it's in the heart of God to fight for those who are oppressed. It's in the heart of God to deliver and set free the slave. And so what we see is God doing what God does, fighting for those who are oppressed. And we see in a moment that his people are going to do the same. So on one side, church, we see this king who is living in fear of man, And God opposing his life. But on the flip side of the story, we see these two women, Shipra and Pua. And these women are rewarded and blessed because they do not live in fear of man, but in fear of God. So look with me in verse 17. And this is what the text says. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But instead, let the male children live. So one of the first things, guys, I want you to see, the difference between fear of man and fear of God is this. These women decided that they would honor God with their lives. That they would honor God with their lives. Long before they were presented with the moral dilemma of taking life, They had already begun a relationship with God. God had already begun to work his character and nature in their heart through their relationship with him. Long before they were presented with this dilemma to take the lives of babies, they had already decided that their lives would be characterized by honoring the one that they love and serve. And so they decided that they would live their lives to honor God, and this reminds me of Proverbs chapter one, verse seven. And this is what the wisdom literature says. In Proverbs one, seven, it says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of knowledge. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love YouTube. And I'll tell you why. Because my knowledge is limited, Right? Like, there are just some things I don't know how to do. Like, I can't make cookies from scratch. I can't build a shelf or a table, whatever, that my wife wants me to make. So I need to go to YouTube to find someone who knows how to do it to show me how to do it. And then so she can post pictures on Facebook and go, look at my amazing husband at what he can do. No, 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 no. I had someone teach me how to build that pot holder, that flower basin, whatever. I love YouTube because it teaches me how to do things I don't know how to do. And so one of the amazing things about Scripture is it teaches us this, is we may think we know how to live. Right? We may, I mean, think, I can't build a flower pot. I can't build a flower holder out of wood, but I have the audacity to think that I know how to live my life. Life is far more complex than building a table that can hold flowers. If I'll go to YouTube to find instructions on how to build a table to build flowers, why in the world would I exclude God in teaching me how to live my life? And so one of the things that scripture teaches that's so amazing is that if we want to know how to live and how to flourish in this world that God created, we need to go to him to learn how to live. And that's what Proverbs tells us, is the beginning of knowing how to live actually starts with knowing God. That when we know God, he teaches us how to live, to honor him and to honor others. And that's what we see playing out in these women's lives, as they honor God with their life. But not only do they honor God with their life, church, it says that they honored God above all. That's another thing when it comes to the fear of the Lord. Like if I, were to, if I were to have to define what the fear of God is and confidently say to you as a church, if you go and do this, this is what it looks like to fear the Lord, I would say this, that the fear of God is living all of life aim to honor and please him. That's the fear of the Lord. And what we see is when these women are presented with a moral dilemma to take the lives of these babies from this Egyptian king, they actually disregard his authority in favor of a higher authority, which is God, their creator. And so living in fear of the Lord, his honoring God above all, and then it is honoring God as Savior. I love this about these women is that one of the very things that they do through their obedience is they actually exemplify the saving character of their just and righteous God. When given the opportunity to take life, they give life. And isn't that God? God, the just. God, the righteous, God, the savior and redeemer. When we live in fear of God, we exemplify the character of God. And that's what's so beautiful about these women. And as a result, church, God honors them. And this is how we know when we live in fear of the Lord, we experience the blessings of God. Because look in verse, in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So one of the very first things God does is he prospers their, their profession, right? They're midwives. They're responsible for delivering babies and under their leadership and through their work, God actually allows the people to multiply and grow strong. So God blesses and prospers everything they put their hands to. But not only does God bless and prosper their their profession, God blesses them. It says here, it says, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. I love that. God blesses measure for measure. You bless me by saving life. I bless you by giving you life. And get this, this is a nice little caveat. What's the name of this pharaoh? Scholars are, are, are racking their mind like, who is this guy? One thing Moses did is he made sure in these pages of God's word that his name was not remembered. But you know whose names were remembered? Shipra and Pua. So one of the ways that God honors these beautiful women is by ensuring that their names are remembered throughout human history. As long as the story of redemption is shared, these names are remembered. So God honors these women. And so church, how do we live as these two women? Like, where do we begin? See, I believe I would do you a disservice if I told you just to go out here and live in fear of God. Go out and seek justice. Do right and do good. That's not where life in God begins. It does not begin in our strength. See, church, in fact, we need God to flourish. That's one of the things that this text teaches us. Is this, is we live in a day and age where we are fighting for justice around every corner right every day we hear fights for freedom every day we hear people standing up for the immigrant every day we hear people fighting for the inclusion and the blessing of the homeless we we see people standing pro life right we see people fighting for the equality of race and gender we people fight for justice and i'll tell you why i believe that such a a fight is because we are image bearers of god And I believe as image bearers of God, we have this desire for justice deep within our souls. But here's what this text teaches us, us guys, is that the abuse of power and the exploitation of the weak is the result of sin. It's the result of sin. That's what we see so clearly in this king's life. And so here's what I want to encourage you as a church. As you stand for justice, as you seek to to deliver and bless the oppressed, your fight is not against power. It's against sin and sin's ability to, to wreck how we use power. And since we know that our fight for justice is really a fight against the wickedness of man's heart, then we cannot approach the question of justice without considering the implications of the gospel. And what we see in the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, the innocent, suffering for the sins of the wicked, the the greatest picture of injustice is the Son of God dying in the place of sinners, and God on the cross judging sin, judging injustice but through his grace and mercy, providing freedom and forgiveness. And so, church, as we fight for the freedom of others, we cannot fight against power. We've got to fight against sin through the gospel. Not only that, we we need a Savior who can rescue us. And It's so clear in this picture like I have a as I said I have a 6 month baby, a 6 month old. I have three kids, 6, 3 and 6 months old. And here's one thing I know about a baby is apart from me protecting them, feeding them, guarding them, they're helpless. These babies were absolutely helpless to delivering themselves from the edict of the king. They needed someone to step in. They needed a, a savior to come and rescue them. And that's what we see in these midwives. We see someone stepping in to rescue these babies. And it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel, is that what scripture teaches is that instead of us living in fear of God, we live in fear of men. And because we live in fear of men, we find sin at work in our lives, and it, it mars us, it stains us, and it breaks our relationship with God. But what God does is he comes in as these Hebrew midwives to deliver us from a sin that we can't deliver ourselves from. And he becomes our rescuer and redeemer. You look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. Paul writes this. He says, for grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Guys, I'm not wise enough to save myself, right? I'm not self-righteous enough to ever please God. But God steps in and he does what I can't do. He saves me. And that's a gift. Not only that, Paul says it's not the result of works so that no man should boast. See, when we look at these Hebrew midwives, the reason that they were redeemers and saviors is because they knew the redeemer and savior. It was God working through them to bring about salvation. And so church, if we're going to be the people of God, right? If we're going to live in fear of God and experience his blessings and bring about prosperity in our cities, in our neighborhoods, we need the God of the gospel at work in our hearts. In order to exemplify his character, we have to have his character. The way to get his character is through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, where God's spirit comes and lives and dwells in us. And so church, what a beautiful picture, right, of this biblical truth, that fear of God leads us into the blessings of God. And so here's how I want to end this today. Not all fear is destructive fear. Right? We grew we are in a culture today where we're taught that fear is destructive. Fear is damaging to self and to others. Fear of man is for sure. But as we see in Exodus 1, 8 through 22, is there exists in this world a fear that creates flourishing, a fear that creates prosperity? And that fear, church, is the fear. Of the Lord is that when we fear God we have courage. When, when we fear God we take redemptive actions and we bring about God's work in this world and when we bring about God's work in this world we become a blessing to ourselves and to others and as a result God honors us God blesses our work and so Renaissance church I have this to 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 proclaim over you or to pray over you this morning it is this, that you would be people who would walk in the fear of the Lord. And that whatever you as a church put your hands to, whatever conversation you have with neighbor, coworker, friend, or family, right? Whatever is taught from your pulpits, that you guys would have a heart posture that fears, the, fears God and brings about flourishing and prosperity in your community. Guys, let's pray.